We are in Daniel chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn there, Daniel chapter 3 is, is where we are going to uh, begin this time this morning. Have you ever loved uh, getting into, um, you know, seeing battles or showdowns uh, on TV or, or uh, been a part of it at a hockey game or a foot, sorry, football game or uh, just uh, your two favorite titans clash on the ice or they clash on the field? Um, some of the favorite uh, rumbles that we like to be a part of is uh, some of my favorite are, you know, the Avengers. This, this is, of course, is the, the big one, right? Civil War, you know? <laughs> you got Captain America versus, uh, versus Iron Man. I grew up reading these, these guys, and, and there's nothing like a good rumble. And they both have good reasons to fight, and you don't know who to cheer for. It's just a good battle, and everybody's getting slammed around, and um, or, of course, you, if you like Superman and Batman, you might like this one better. Or um, uh, do we have Superman and Batman up there? This is a really good picture. I got Batman throwing a fist in Superman's face. But uh, anyway, it's probably locked. Anyway, uh, so we got Superman versus Batman. Or I know why it's not working, Matt, because you're here and you don't see that's a good picture, isn't it? You don't want to see the next one, right? Because because the next one is the Blackhawks versus the Predators. What in the world happened in this rumble? But um, we, we went down in flames. Uh, sorry about that, Blackhawks. What did we lose? Like five to zero? <laughs> it's too soon. It's, it's too soon. The wounds are too fresh. Uh, maybe we should talk about aliens versus Predators instead of the Blackhawks versus Predators. Or how about Cowboys and Indians? You know, that, that's always a big one. And yeah, you can't say Cowboys and Indians, but you can if it's football. So there you go. <laughs> Cowboys versus Indians. You don't get in trouble for that these days. Not yet, anyway. Uh, when you get to Daniel chapter 3, we're about to see a clash like nobody's business. This is a clash of titans. Uh, the difficulty is, and the challenge is, that there's only one major titan, and that is God. The other guy thinks he's God. Now, I don't know about you, but this uh, friends of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, might back up the idea that he's God because they don't want to get thrown into the fiery furnace. You know, they, they want to be on his good side. Maybe you've got some friends that think they're God. Maybe you've got some spouses that think they're God. I don't know what your situation is, but Nebuchadnezzar thought he was greater than God. Last time we talked, he had a dream. You remember the dream? And uh, he had his wise men come, and he said, I think you're all snowing me, so you don't just need to know me the interpretation and tell me the interpretation. you got to tell me the dream. And all the, all the wise men were going, nobody can do that, nobody can do that. And then Daniel said, no, I can do that with the power of God. And then God gives him the dream. He tells him the dream, and he tells him the interpretation. Do you remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had? God's trying to get this guy's attention. The dream is of the statue. Remember the statue? And the top of the statue was the head of gold, and that stood for? Nebuchadnezzar, that stood for Babylon, the great kingdom of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's at the, at the head. And whoever built the statue was, was crazy in the head because they built the head of gold and the feet were made of clay and iron. A mixed. You don't want to do that. Then the thing's top-heavy. And that represents all the different kingdoms that are going to come along. You have the Medes and the Persians for the chest, and then you got the, um, the iron for the legs, and that stood for Rome. All these different kingdoms that would come along. And then all of a sudden, at the end of time, a rock carved from no human hand would come and destroy that whole statue. The whole thing would fall to the ground. And that rock, we know, is Jesus Christ. The rock would fill the earth and he would rule all time, for all time, all eternity. And he would have the final kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar hears this dream. 
And then he promotes Daniel because he loves Daniel's interpretation. He loved the fact that he pulled it off. He told him his dream and the interpretation, so he must be right. But I think that's stuck in his craw. I think Nebuchadnezzar had this dream and he thought to himself the next day and the day after that and the day after that, wait a minute. You mean to say that I'm the head of gold. It is the most precious metal on the thing. I'm the head of gold and someone's going to take this kingdom away from me? Yeah, who's going to take this kingdom away from me? So what he decides to do. See, when people have their world's view, world views challenged, they don't always respond very well. So Nebuchadnezzar, instead of bowing to God's interpretation of his dream, in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm not only going to be the head of gold, but I'm going to be the whole statue of gold. And the first thing he does in, in Daniel chapter 3 is he, he has a statue made completely of gold from the head to the foot. And it is 90 feet now, if you don't know how far 90 feet high is, um, you can look on my video for this week that I did. Uh, uh, Pastor Michael peed on my feet just a little bit when we got up 90 <laughs> feet in the air because we were up there at this incredible height. It might have been me. Uh, we were up there at this incredible height. 90 feet is a long way up. And I looked down and I thought to myself, this is already scary enough. Can you imagine making an idol of gold 90 feet high? That takes a, a, good, a, a good chunk of ego, don't you think? I'm going to make a statue of gold 90 feet high. Nebuchadnezzar is a product of his, of his own ego. His worldview is hard to relinquish. He is not going to surrender to God. He's going to have a clash of the titans. So take your Bibles, turn to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, turn to Daniel <laughs> chapter 3 and verse 1. Here's what it says. Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, that's 90 feet, and its breadth six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar seems to be bowing to the greatness of God because at the end of Daniel chapter 2, he says there's no other God greater than Yahweh, Daniel's God. He is the God of small g gods. He's not, he's not willing to say he's the only God yet. And so he makes this thing completely out of gold. Why do you think he made it out of gold? Other than his ego. I was thinking about this. I thought, that statue would be hard to knock over, don't you think? It, yeah, it's a big, heavy item set up in the plain of Dura. Nebuchadnezzar was a narcissist. And egos on narcissists are pretty unmovable. And so was the statue. But it wasn't good enough to have a statue made of himself. He had to have a party and invite all of his friends over so that they could look at the statue and see his greatness. And so he plans a party. Um, he wanted to make sure that they knew he was king. He builds great things and he is here to stay. He's not going to get knocked over by any silly stone. Look in verse 2. Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the uh, satraps, the prefects, and the governors and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, all the officials of the provinces to come up to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar king had set up. So this is a great celebration. He was going to force the whole world to see his greatness. And not only see his greatness, but acknowledge his greatness. And what better way to acknowledge somebody's greatness than have them bow 
to you. That's a good way to do it, right? So if they bowed to Nebuchadnezzar, they should bow to his statue. Look in verse 4. Then the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, languages, that when you hear the sound of the harp, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The thinking here, I believe, is that if Nebuchadnezzar got all of these folks to see his greatness and bow to his greatness, who's going to think about conquering his greatness? So he's going to hang on to his greatness through this means of this statue. And any rival that would think about taking over Babylon, this statue should be something that would deter them from doing that. Seems like he's doing everything he can to make sure that the dream from God never comes true. He's there to stay. He's taken on God. But if you're a good narcissist, you have to do a couple of things to make sure that you stay center in everybody's life. So the second thing he decides to do is make this symbol a unifying symbol. Everybody has to acknowledge what a great unifying symbol this is. He decides that he's going to make this symbol the center point for every people, every tongue, every... Did you remember reading all that? Every language, every people would be in one place. They would see this statue, and this would be like the American flag for them. This would be their unifying symbol that they could unify around and say, you know what? Babylon's here to stay. Nebuchadnezzar's greatness is here to stay. He would be their one king to rule them all. <laughs> That's from the, yeah, the ring. Yeah, one ring to rule them all. Um, it's interesting that this statue that he built in the province, in the plain of Dura, is in the same spot where Babel was constructed. If you re remember the story of Babel, everybody built this tower way back in the early chapters of Genesis because they wanted to declare their oneness, their unity, their, their greatness before God. And so they declared that they would build a tower that would reach the heavens, that would reach God himself. This is the same plain where Nebuchadnezzar piles 90 feet high of gold and carves it into an image honoring himself. You want to know another interesting piece of information? Archaeologists have discovered in the plain of Dura a platform 19.5 feet high and 16.5 square yards around the surface that could hold a 90-foot statue. The challenge was that everybody would have to declare their devotion to this one symbol. So how was he going to do it? Well, force compliance. If you want to make sure that everybody bows and everybody unifies around the symbol, you've got to make it happen. And so this is what he decides to do. Daniel 3, verse 6. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a what, church? To a burning fiery furnace. All right. So this is just to make it easy for everybody. All right. Your alternatives are pretty plain. You can bow to the idol, which is pretty amazing. 90 feet pile high of gold. That's pretty cool. Bow to that, which doesn't take a lot of work to do. Or not do it and go into a burning fiery furnace. At this point, you have to say to yourself, well, for most people, the choice is probably pretty easy. Bow to the idol. It is the easiest way to go. I mean, you don't want your kids to be parentless. 
just because you wouldn't bow to an idol. I mean, you don't really mean it. You just bow to the idol and get it over because some narcissist decides to put up a, a statue and make you bow. You don't mean it. You're not going to bow. Or, or you, you'll just bow. But to not bow, would be, that would be unthinkable. Keep in mind that most of the people gathered here are from conquered nations that Nebuchadnezzar has conquered. These are not his friends. They, they, may, not even, they may not even like Nebuchadnezzar. These are people that he has conquered, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from Jerusalem. He has brought them over. He has made them prefix and, and stratafs or whatever those names are. He has given them important parts of the government to run, but they are conquered peoples. They probably don't even like the guy. But the alternative is going to the fiery furnace. So isn't it easier just to bow? Verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, eh, bagpipes, Scottish people, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages, there you have it, they're not all from Babylon, all peoples, all nations, all languages. What did they do, church? They fell down and they worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Why did they bow? Because it was the easiest thing to do. Why does the world give up their morals so quickly? Why do they not stand up? Why do they not take the ridicule? It's just the easiest thing to do. Uh, we constantly choose the path of least resistance. For these folks, they may not even like the guy, but they're thinking to themselves, what's the least I can do and still be okay? And for us today, it's very much the same. What's the least I can do, still be okay? Why do men and women of principle crack under pressure today? Why do churches crack under pressure today? Why, why can I go to some churches and they, are, they literally will not let you talk about certain topics when the Bible says preach the whole counsel of God? It's amazing to me that in every aspect of human existence, Humans choose the path of least resistance. Whatever costs them the least, that's what they're willing to do. Why stand up? Why stand out if it means it's going to cost me something? The worldview of others is already winning. Why make a fuss? This is exactly um, what was going through, I think, the minds of these people that probably didn't even like Nebuchadnezzar, but they're willing to bow to him. So the big day is underway. Everyone's following the instructions, verse 8. Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Wait a minute. Not everybody apparently is following the instructions. Now I don't know if you've ever seen a huge group, thousands of people all bowing at the same time. You could see this if you Google it. These pictures are available. And you think to yourself, out of thousands and thousands of people, how do you notice three people not, not bowing? I want to tell you, when you see a whole lot of people bowing to the ground, three people standing up sticks out like a sore thumb. You can see them from a mile away, just standing there. And what do you think these guys were thinking, right? Every music starts. It's a party. It's a carnival. Everybody bow. Everybody, it's a big pile of gold. Wouldn't you like to take this home? You know, everybody's partying. They all bow down. And these guys, I, I can't even imagine these three guys. Your shag, my shag, and a bungalow. Shadrach, Meshach, and a bungalow. They're standing there, and they won't bow. Were they crossing their arms? Were they being defiant? Were they, or were they petrified? They knew the rules. And these Chaldeans, don't you love the Chaldeans? <laughs> these guys. 
These guys were the guys that look around when you pray, you know? All right, everybody's heads are bowed, everybody's eyes are closed. Craig didn't have his eyes closed. Craig didn't have his eyes head bowed. These guys are looking to see who wouldn't bow. And as soon as they saw the three, they run up to Nebuchadnezzar and they, they tell on him. They make sure Nebuchadnezzar knows that these, these three guys weren't obeying him. Now the Chaldeans, you should know, way back at, in this day, we've already seen them once in Daniel 2. These Chaldeans couldn't interpret, the, they, they could make up an interpretation of the dream, but they couldn't say the dream. You remember that? So how do you think they feel about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right now? They probably don't like them. Oh, Daniel told the dream. Yay. So they want to get rid of as many of these guys as they possibly can. So they hightail it up to the... By the way, these were wise men in this day, these Chaldeans. Um, clearly angry that they were made to be, look stupid in Daniel chapter 2. And what do smart people do when they're proven wrong? They get very aggressive. They do. They get very nasty. They, they don't respond well. These guys, they run up. Daniel 3, verse 9. Then they declare to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Don't you love that? <clears throat> We're your buddies. Remember us? You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the burning, fiery furnace. Do you notice anything weird about this? They repeat Nebuchadnezzar's command word for word, instrument by instrument. Why did they do that? Because I think they wanted to trap the king and force him to play his hand. They knew Nebuchadnezzar was a narcissist. And they knew, hey, did you say this? And Nebuchadnezzar would say, yeah, I had to say that. Then you have to follow through. So they say his command word for word. And they tell on the Jews. They had now, Nebuchadnezzar had confessed that Yahweh was a great God in Daniel chapter 2. But he didn't confess that he was the only God. And God is never going to be satisfied when we give him a place. He's only going to be satisfied when we give him the place in our lives. By the way, that is a truth of scripture from beginning to end. If you're thinking to yourself, well, God can be a God among other gods, or maybe there's a whole lot of different ways to heaven, you need to understand scripture does not back that idea up anywhere. No, nowhere from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, it backs up exactly the opposite. Jesus himself said, you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your strength and all of your mind. All of it. There's no reserves for any other gods. God has to be the only God in our lives. That is a, a truth of scripture from the beginning of the end. But Nebuchadnezzar, the problem is he wouldn't let go of this worldview that he grew up with very lightly. He had always been taught that there's all these different gods. That's the world that he grew up in. Everybody believed that. So for him to take, out, to take this message away from, uh, from Daniel chapter 2 is asking a lot. And so he hung on to his worldview. God is great God. I'm not arguing that. But he's a God among other gods. And this is why Nebuchadnezzar saw three men that were not willing to bow. Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew God was the only God's first commandment. There shall be no other gods before you. All the way through Scripture. These guys knew that, and they knew if they bowed to this golden idol, they would be acknowledging that there might be another God. There might be another great God, and they refused to do it. They weren't trying to be morons. They were standing up for their principles. They were standing up for the truth that they knew to be true. 
So, Daniel 3, verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Here are their names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember these guys? These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was this close. But you can't be this close and still get in. It's like golf. Hole in one's a hole in one. Leaning on the edge of the cup doesn't count. It's still another stroke. And Jesus doesn't want people to be fond of him. He wants people to follow him. In Matthew 10 and verse 37, Jesus said it this way, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That kind of devotion to Jesus Christ is the only devotion, the only way you can be a follower of Jesus Christ. It sounds harsh. You mean I have to love Jesus more than my son and my daughter and my mom and my dad? Simple answer, yes, you do. He doesn't want to be second place, third place, or fourth. He, wants to, he needs to be first. And that's beca not because he's like Nebuchadnezzar. It's not because he's an egomaniac. It's because he is meant to fill that hole in your heart. And people before you have tried to fill that hole with a lot of different things. And people today try and fill it with a lot of different things. But God is the only one that fills that spot. And if you make him first in your life, you'll find that everything else will fall into place. That's how we're made to function. If you put water in the gas tank of your lawnmower, you might get some of the lawn done, but you're going to have to buy another lawnmower. Lawnmowers are meant to run on gas, and you as a human being, you are meant to run on God filling that hole first. That is how we're made to function. If we function any other way, our lives will begin to crumble. And that's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, <laughs> that's why their lives are about to be destroyed. They're about to die. But they kept God where he needed to be, right there, first and foremost. Now, I need to do a little sidebar here because I'm starting to really like Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't that weird? You know why? Because Nebuchadnezzar likes these guys. You may not have seen it ever before, but I want to show you in Daniel 3.15 the way that he is compelling these three guys. He doesn't get mad at them. He doesn't immediately throw them into the furnace. This egomaniac, this narcissist, begs them to please listen to him so that he doesn't have to follow through with his command to throw him into the furnace. Look what he says. Now, have you ever, would you ever expect Nebuchadnezzar to say, now, guys, if you're ready, if you're okay with this, you're ready to go, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, it goes through it all again. The pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, please fall down and worship the image that I have made. Well and good? That's not what a Nebuchadnezzar that we might think would be an egomaniac would do. That's what somebody does if he likes the people he's talking to. He's pretty much begging them to do it so they wouldn't force his hand. He's urging them. But if you are a true narcissist and you're going to take on the rival, God, then the last thing you do, you got to do is your drive to win has to trump everything else. Your drive to be right has to trump 
everything else and every relationship in your life. I think he really liked these three guys. But his drive to win, his drive to be right, forced him, forced his hand. And this is what he said in the end of verse 15. But, guys, friends, if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Isn't that a great line? Who's going to save you then? Because we know what fire does, right? We all know what fire does. And you're going to be in the middle of it. You're going to die. No God can save you from that. And he ups the ante. Which brings me to the second and last point. Jesus always wins. <laughs> Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, why do you think they said this? We have no need to answer you in this matter. Why do you think they said that? Could it be that they, they were already decided on their course of action? That, that they, they don't even need to answer. Or could it be that they're alluding to Daniel chapter 2 and they're saying, you have already seen the greatness of God. You, we don't even need to answer. You know the God that we serve. What God is able to deliver us out of your hands? You know him. You've seen him. You've seen his power. Maybe they mean that. Either I think they were saying, you should know this by now. And this is the showdown. We have no need to answer you in this matter because the boys are convinced that God can save them. Verse 17, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. They don't know how. They've never read this story before, but they believe it to the core and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And in this way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand in stark contrast to Nebuchadnezzar. And here's faith. These guys know that God can deliver them. But look what they say next. But if he doesn't, but if not, but if God doesn't rescue us, be it known to you, O king, that we will still not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Don't you love these guys? Their principles are set up before they get to the showdown. Their confidence is already built in the abilities of God. They don't need to have a powwow. You, you might think, you know, Shadrach's talking and Meshach's over there going, I'm really considering this. Shadrach, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't listen to this guy. I'd, I'd like to speak for myself. But they don't. There's no bickering among them. One speaks for all of them. Why? Because they are already confident in God's abilities and they are already sold out for their principles. And if you want to succeed in faith, you've got to have a strong faith before you get on the battlefield. Strong faith forces proud hands to be played. So in this case, that's exactly what happens in verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. Now look at this. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know what I read there? I read that he was really sad that they made this choice. I think that he was anxious for them to take the out. Reconsider, go bow, just do what I said to do, and we'll still have a great relationship. They were already high up in the court. They could still get along. And I think the expression of his face was changed because he realized they're forcing his hand, and now he gets angry, really angry. He gets angry because they don't acknowledge his greatness. He gets angry because they don't take his way out. 
and his gracious offer for them to one more time have one more chance. So he ordered the furnace heated <laughs> seven times. Now, how hot is flame? How, uh, fire is hot, right? Fire, bad. All right, fire is hot. He ordered this thing heated seven times hotter than it's usually heated. What good did that do? No good at all, right? Fire, fire's already going to uh, lick you up. It's already going to eat you. But I think he lost it here. His face was changed because he realized they weren't going to take his way, up, way out. And so he ordered that this thing get piped up as hot as it can be. And then he ordered his strongest men to carry these guys down into the furnace and throw them in. Why did he order his strongest guys to do this? These guys, was this Arnold Schwarzenegger? You know, these, these guys, were they, were they tough guys? They don't come across that way. Nebuchadnezzar is so ticked, he's so furious, he orders it hotter, and he orders his strongest men to take him down. Daniel 3, verse 21. The men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats. They're already bound. Why do you need strong men? And their other garments, they were all bound up. And they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace heated, uh, overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's a hot furnace. They got so close, they melted. Can you imagine how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego must have felt if they're not melting and these guys are? It had to be a terrifying scene. God loves to surprise those he's trying to capture their attention. God is wooing Nebuchadnezzar. And he loves to surprise him. And God is validating Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He doesn't give them any notice beforehand that they're going to be fine. They are walking in there thinking to themselves, God can save us. But if he doesn't save us, God is still God. Confidence. Jesus regularly shows up in Scripture to assist those who are in peril. Did you know that? That is another truth from beginning to end. He showed up to give promises to Abraham and Sarah when they had no children and wanted nothing more than just one child. He showed up to give a new life and a new name to Jacob. He showed up to encourage Joshua before his greatest battle. He showed up to calm the storm for the disciples. He showed up to ensure Paul that he was carrying Jesus' message and Jesus' power to Rome. He promises to show up where two or three are gathered in his name. Did you know that? Jesus promises to show up regularly before God's throne to pray for you. Did you know that? Jesus is praying for us on a regular basis for you by name before the Father because he promises to do that on a regular basis. Jesus shows up and he promises to be with us to the end of the world. When you're in the worst of the moments, and you might be this morning, be reminded of this truth, that God shows up when the moments are very, very tough. And you may think you're alone. And you may think your prayers are going to the ceiling. Sometimes he waits until the last minute, like when you're in the fire. I mean, don't you think he should have showed up like when Nebuchadnezzar was talking about, poof, Jesus is there and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're, you're wrong. These guys are right. Nebuchadnezzar would have never gone through with the whole fire thing. But no, no. Binds them up, throws them into the furnace, and it is there where Jesus shows up. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. 
Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. Oh, I missed a verse. I missed a verse. Verse 24. I got to read this. Sorry, I got to back up. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. So he goes to the furnace and he calls these guys out. He says, come out of the fire. And the one question I have for you is this. These guys, these three guys, have gone through the biggest test of their lives. Their faith carries them through. Their confidence in God carries them through. They think they're going to die. This is the end for them. But God can save them. They go into the furnace and they are walking around in this seven times hotter than usual furnace. And Jesus shows up. And they walk around. And I, I don't, what do you think they talked about in there? Do you think Jesus was like going, you guys have done a great thing. Let me tell you some things you may not know about who I am and, and some things about the Jewish culture. Yeah. Let me tell you about the church to come. You're going to love this part. Let me tell you about the bigger plan that I have that you don't know yet. We call it the mystery in the New Testament. Whole theology lesson, right? In the furnace, right? And then this moron comes to the to the front of the furnace and says, hey, you guys, come on out of there. What do you think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wanted to do at that point? <laughs> they probably wanted to stay, wouldn't you? Go out and talk to Nebuchadnezzar or stay walking with Jesus. I wish I was like that when I go through the fire. I wish that when I'm in the fire and I see God in ways, and you could probably test this too, when you see God work in ways that you never have seen before. So many times we pray and we say, God, get me out of this. But maybe God has some big things to show you in it. And maybe those lessons can only be learned in it. And so maybe our prayers, instead of saying, God, get me out of this, maybe we should be praying, God, get me as much out of this as I possibly learn. I think if that, because the stories that I read about these amazing people of faith, always become amazing people of faith in the furnace. But the king calls. So they come out. God protects them from any semblance of the trial at all. They don't. There's nothing on them burned. They don't look like their hair is singed. They don't even smell like smoke. Look in verse 30, uh, 27. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king counselors, all of them. Isn't it great? This is a big spectacle. It's carnival. They're all gathered together. And they saw that the fire had no power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. Not even the smell of fire was on them. Oh, isn't God good? That's just amazing. Now you reread this story and we think to ourselves, that's, that's a good story to tell my kids. Yeah, it is but it's such a good story to be reminded of as adults. Because when you see the greatness of God's power in your life, a response is demanded. Whenever God shows us his greatness, a response from us is required. You probably never got thrown into a furnace seven times hotter than it normally is by some egotistical narcissist who makes a statue made of 90 feet tall gold. That probably will never or has it ever happened to you. But you have seen the greatness of God. And I have seen the greatness of God. And when I see it, it is, 
it is required of me to give a response. Unfortunately, most people, when they see the greatness of God, and you can look at anyone in this building and outside surrounding this building, and everyone has seen the greatness of God. You can't see a sunset that takes your breath away and not see the greatness of God. Most people, when they see the greatness of God, they ignore it. They pretend it doesn't happen. This is the popular choice. Their worldview clashes with acknowledging that there might be a great God. And if they believe all of a sudden that there's a great God, they have to give up all of the stuff that they've believed in their whole life. And for a lot of people, that's too much to give up. It's too big of a struggle. It's too big of a titanic clash. And so they hang on to their worldview, but they have to do something with the greatness of God, and so they choose to ignore it, to be blind. When their wisdom doesn't hold up, they choose to ignore it. They make up stories. When their worldview crumbles, they choose to ignore it. And when they do this, they do this to their own peril. Because God demands a response. Read the book of Romans. It's a powerful book that talks about this. Romans chapter 1. That's just, just read chapter 1. Powerful. Every person has experienced the greatness of God. Most people ignore it. Or you can respond honestly and admit the greatness of God. Now that seems the most reasonable one, right? But it's the hardest. Do you know why it's the hardest? Take a guess. Because a lot of us are a lot more like Nebuchadnezzar than we want to give ourselves credit for. The hardest things for us to give up are our own pride, our own proud feelings, our own insight about what is wisdom and what is not wisdom. It's very easy to bow at the idol that the worlds bow at. It's very hard to bow at the altar of the one true God. Nebuchadnezzar, however, sees the greatness of God and he responds wisely. You want to know what he did? This is so good. This is why I kind of like this guy and I'm going to even like him more next week. Look in verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angels and delivered, or sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command. They yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. He is the guy that set up the god. He is literally saying, I'm wrong, God's right. That takes a lot of pride swallowing. He set the battle lines. They had faith. And he was honest about his loss. In fact, in verse 29, he says, Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be <laughs> get this, torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue this way. I want them dead. I want their friends dead. I want their houses burned to the ground. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, listen, God is not just the great God, and I'm not just going to give him most service like I did in Daniel chapter 2. I'm acknowledging that he is the one true, great, and awesome God. He hasn't got his heart yet. He doesn't understand it fully yet. There's one more piece of straw that will break this camel's back. But he has gotten to the point where he admits, God is great, and I was wrong. What do you think he did with the idol after that? Ever wonder? I don't know. 
He's honest about his loss. There's no, he, he can't ignore this great miracle that he has seen. And God next week is about to humble him in a way that Nebuchadnezzar has never been humbled, and you have not either. It's a terrible story. You're going to love it. You want to come back for it. It's, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible, but you're going to really love it. After he goes through what he goes through next week, listen to the words that Nebuchadnezzar writes. They follow this story in chapter 4, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar is writing by his own hand in the book of Daniel these words. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. Is that great? He breaks. He breaks. Now why go through this story today? How does this affect my life? Well, I'm glad you asked. You may never have an experience of walking through a fiery furnace. My guess is you probably never will. I might before you. So, you know, that, that may happen. But we should be powerfully impacted by these three guys. These moments that they stand up for their faith, these moments in our lives when we stand up for our faith, these are our defining moments. You may see somebody that is martyred for their faith and think to yourself, what a waste. God looks at somebody that's martyred for their faith and says, what a trophy of grace. God does never reveal to us what he's doing in the background, but he's always doing something in the background. And you may have a Nebuchadnezzar in your life. <laughs> you may have somebody that you think they are never going to crack. They are never going to get saved. They are, they are on Nebuchadnezzar's narcissistic level. They are there. I know them. Let me encourage you. Nebuchadnezzar is cracking because God is doing things in his life that not everybody sees but are always getting done. And your prayers for your friends, for your family, for your kids, for your, for your co-workers, those prayers will be heard and they will be answered. You never know what God is doing in the background. So here's your battle motto. Here's our battle motto. Remain steadfast in your faith. You never know what God is doing in you. And you never know what God is doing in the hardened heart next to you. Sometimes we give up. Sometimes we're on the cusp of seeing something great that God will do, and we give up. Let me tell you, these three guys, I don't picture them as guys that gave up. Do you? Do you think they kept on praying the whole time they were carried to the furnace? Do you think they squirmed? Do you think they fought the strong men? They're all tied up tight. Keep in mind, when they came out, they didn't have to lose them. There was something burned off them. You know what was burned off them? Their bindings. They had to loose them. They were set free in the fire. Sometimes we're tempted to give up on those things and those people and those occasions when we're, when, we're, when we're about to see God in a way that we've never seen him before. We're about to see him work in a way that we've never seen him before. So the message that I'm urging to you this morning, that I'm compelling you to hear this morning is this. Don't give up before it's time to give up. Remain steadfast, remain faithful. You know what God requires and you don't know what he's doing. So be faithful to what he requires. You never know what God is doing in the background. And your faithful testimony might just be the catalyst God is waiting to use to make a difference in this world. Let's pray.
This, this story of these three men sets us back a bit because it's such an outstanding reminder to us of the greatness that belongs to you alone, God. It reminds us that we don't serve a God who is, who is dead, but a God who is alive, a God who has conquered death and the grave and, and stupid narcissistic kings, a God who can overcome the elements of fire, a God who is at the whim of no man, this is the God that we serve. This is the God that we sing to this morning. This is the God we worship and none other. So in a world where we are taught that the easiest thing is just to accept all points of view, let us remain steadfast to the truth that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Let us remain true to the, to the fact that we know that you said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let us remain truth to the message that you gave your people so long ago that there are to be no other gods before you but you. And for us, Father, let that that be true, that there be no other gods in our lives, no other thing that would be more important to us than you. May we live our lives with you at the center and everything else revolving around it. And in this way, let us be Shadrach, Meshachs, and Abednegoes as we live out our lives faithfully, waiting to see what great thing you'll do next. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.